0: Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast. Join host Susan Coleman as she interviews today's most creative, courageous, and sometimes outrageous mediators, coaches, entrepreneurs, and out of the box thinkers whose work, whether intended or not, is building peace. Tune in for 45 minutes of pure inspiration as we explore the best stories, the best practices, the best ideas of a new world emerging. Here's your host, global consultant, coach, facilitator, and mediator, Susan Coleman.
1: So, hello, Mel Duncan. How are you?
2: Hello, Susan. I'm doing well. How are you?
1: Yeah, I have uh, Mel Duncan here who does some truly moving work um, with the Nonviolent Peace Force. And he's the founding director and director for advocacy and outreach of uh, Nonviolent Peace Force. And um, he's uh, comes from Minnesota, I think, originally. Is that right?
2: Well, originally, I am from Iowa. uh, Okay,
1: originally from Iowa. I spent
2: much of my adult life in Minnesota.
1: And Mel, what's a typical month for you? Like, where where do you, because right now you're in New York City, I think, um, but you find yourself in lots, do you you travel a lot? Are you on the move a lot, or do you do a lot of your work uh, from a central location?
2: For the past four years, I've been focusing my work in New York and specifically at the UN, helping them to understand new ways of dealing with violent conflict other than just by sending armed peacekeepers. So I'm here in New York about three quarter time and then I travel some and about once every couple of months I get home to Minnesota.
1: Mm -hmm. and i gather um you you have eight children 12 grandchildren you've been very prolific in many ways Yes, we have um and you've gotten a lot of awards uh i liked this i'm going to put your bio up on the website but the etni reader uh, i love the etni reader uh named you as one of the 50 visionaries who are changing our world uh which uh that's quite an honor and um so uh, anything at the outset, I'm going to put your bio up there, but anything at the outset that you feel like is important to say about yourself before you start getting into the work?
2: Yes, I that I am a regular human being who has had an opportunity to work with a lot of other regular human beings, and together we've been able to do extraordinary things, and people listening to this podcast also have the ability to do rather extraordinary things with the gifts that they have
1: yeah it's really i think it's so important for people to find their own innate leadership because uh really we need a lot of it out there right a lot. now. and
2: we yeah we have the capacity within us
1: yeah we really do we really do so, um, tell us, uh, I just want to get right into this work because um, you know we're always uh, paying attention to time on these podcasts, and the work is really amazing and um, so I know it's not just the work of nonviolent peace force it's broader than that. and could you tell us what the work is and uh, and then maybe we could get into some stories about the kind of uh, what you actually do and what kind of impact you think it has?
2: Nonviolent Peace Force sends trained, unarmed, civilian protectors to areas of violent conflict. And while we are there, we provide direct protection of civilians who are under threat because of war. And then we work with local people at the grassroots to deter further violence. And today, in uh, modern-day conflicts, 90-plus percent of the casualties of war are civilians. And Susan, that's reversed from 100 years ago during World War I when only 10 percent, and I say only, one is too many, 10 percent of the casualties of war are civilians. Now the vast majority of people injured and killed are civilians and so it makes sense that as fellow civilians that we work together to protect them and to stop the violence.
1: And Mel, what percentage of those 90% are women and children?
2: The vast majority. Uh, We find that women are uh, targeted, are um, part of strategies of war, gender-based violence where we work uh, is on the rise where women are intentionally gang raped uh, to subdue, to terrorize populations. And so this is all part of a strategic um, plan in terms of making war. This isn't uh, an issue of uh, men going wild. This is strategic and planned to dominate peoples. And so there's very specific strategies that we can employ that will protect women against this kind of gender-based violence.
1: And I I gather when I was reading uh, your case studies, which I I, I think, uh, can we put those up on uh, the website along with this interview? Because I think they're really, really super interesting. Um, There are lots of different case studies of all the different places that, um, not all the different places, I imagine, but many of the different places that you've worked and the types of scenarios and how you've intervened and what's happened. Um, But I noticed that many, well, I was curious, actually, uh, who are the people that are the um, unarmed civilian? Is that the, the UCP is Unarmed Civilian Protector? Yes. Or peacekeeper
2: protect, protector.
1: Are they people, are they foreigners? Are they people from the local population? Uh, who are the people that you, um, that are doing the work actually on the ground?
2: 50 to 60 percent of our civilian protectors come from the host country and the other 40 to 50 percent come from throughout the world. So for example In South Sudan, where we have about 200 people on the ground, the internationals who are there come from 25 different countries. Wow.
1: Mm -hmm. What's the age range of them?
2: The age range is 25 to uh, about 58, and the median age is right about 35.
1: And how do they find you? How do they come to even know that you exist and want to do this kind of work?
2: Recruitment is never an issue for us. <laughs> we always have many more people. Uh,
1: and they're, they're all coming on a volunteer basis?
2: No, they're paid.
1: Oh, they're paid. Okay.
2: Yes. Okay. We believe that this kind of work uh, should be long-term Yeah. and uh, people should be able to support themselves and their families while doing it. And so, I uh, our people in the field receive uh, their board, their lodging, their transportation, their insurance, their training, their uniforms and then uh, typically will get about $2,000 stipend that they cannot spend in the field. So they send that home or they put it in a bank account and have that uh, when their service is completed.
1: And how long do people tend to work with you? It's usually about two years. Yeah, because it must be uh, kind of hard. I mean, for anyone doing this, I don't know, <laughs> or very hard. I I've been in, in you know in the UN uh, peacekeeping missions, and I know how hard it is for them. And this, I'm just guessing, is even harder. Although I don't know. I mean, what your take would be on that?
2: It is difficult. Our people live in challenging environments. Sometimes very remotely. They uh, live again. Uh, Amid changing circumstances where there can be violence. And so uh, it is difficult. And yet we have some people who have been with us now for as long as 10 years. Wow.
1: All right. Well, I think it'd be really great if you could go very specific and and, uh, tell. uh, You have many stories. And I don't know if you could uh, just pick a story and, and, and give us the description of what the situation is, what the context is, and then exactly how um the UCPs intervened, uh or nonviolent Peace Force or however I should refer to it. I'm not sure. However you whatever you think. But but to tell yeah you know, to really get paint a picture of what the work looks like in reality.
2: I I'm not sure that I can limit myself to one story, but let me yeah.
1: try. No no you don't need to. You could tell more than one. But yeah, it just but to really to really be specific about any particular sure. story.
2: I uh, we talked uh a few minutes ago, about gender based violence. So let's start there. Okay. As I mentioned, our largest team right now is in South Sudan, where that country, which is the newest country in the world and uh, probably the poorest country in the world, has uh, suffered the reignition of a civil war for about 26 months now. Mm-hmm. Tens of thousands of people have congregated in the proximity of UN compounds, areas that they now call protection of civilian areas or POC areas. They don't even call them internally displaced camps because that would dignify the conditions too much. Mm-hmm. These grew up spontaneously, people speaking or seeking some degree of security based on proximity. Mm -hmm. So, in these POC or protection of civilian areas, women have to leave every day to collect firewood. They have to go deeper and deeper into the bush as their stay is extended there because the areas... There's no woods,
1: yeah.
2: And there are groups of soldiers who lurk on the outskirts of those areas?
1: And these are either Dinka Nuer, or they are they're 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 soldiers from South. Su- they're locals. They're fighters, or they're they're not UN.
2: They're not UN. They're, they're no, not, they're not UN. Yeah. these are either government soldiers or rebel groups. Okay, okay. And they lurk on the outside of the camps and will gang rape mm. the women fairly often. Um. The, the number of, the percentage of women um, who have to uh, suffer from gender-based violence is just stunningly high. What we have found is that if two to four of our unarmed civilian protectors accompany 20 to 30 women as they go out on firewood patrol, they are left alone. The soldiers look the other way
1: now why would that be why wouldn't your people
2: also are they male female they're usually a mix of genders okay uh male and female national and international there's a number of reasons to why this works number one we make it our business to communicate with all the armed groups Mm -hmm. so in advance they knew they know who we are and why we're there, if we sneak up on somebody in the field, we haven't done our work.
1: Yeah, okay. Are you, are you identified by clothing in any we way? We
2: are well-logoed. So, yes. okay. We have uniforms and, mm-hmm. uh, on our vehicles, and, and every, everybody knows uh, that our people are from nonviolent peace force. So, we first communicate with the armed groups so they know that there is an international group that is there that are serving as the eyes, the ears, and the conscience of the international community. They're
1: basically providing, they're the third side. I don't know if you read Bill Urey's books, but the the concept of the third
2: side. Um, Yes. Yeah. And so they, um, another reason that this works is that we find that people are hesitant to do these kinds of horrible acts in front of other people. Uh, And so if we can shine attention and light on the situation, those um, horrible deeds are less likely to happen.
1: And and Mel, why do you think this is a a tactic of war versus uh, simply um, is, you know, pathological behavior? I mean, it is pathological behavior, but it is. Uh, but, yeah. uh, but I mean, it, but it, you're saying it's a tactic of war, and you're pretty cer- certain of that.
2: Yes, because the repetition mm-hmm. uh, that we see over and over. In fact, Susan, we had one woman say to us that one of the soldiers, as he was raping her, said, This is part of my job. Oh, yeah. And they do it because it's a way to to not only um, injure one person, but to spread domination and fear among an entire group and therefore inhibit them and to uh, lessen their ability to act and to have agency on their own behalf. And so what we're, we're seeing is that women, when supported and properly trained, are willing to stand up, even in light of... Those kinds of situations.
1: So tell me about that. How does that? How does that work? Uh, you actually are training the women themselves, or you're training? Yes. Okay. So how does that? How does that work?
2: We have teams of uh, women's peacekeepers. Okay. <coughs> and they work uh, in their local area to quell violence, to provide support to other women who are standing up to violence, whether that be the um, direct violence of war or domestic violence, uh, which is rampant. Uh, They also work, for example, to encourage uh, their fellow women to keep their girls in school as opposed to uh, having them get married at a very young age in exchange for cattle dowries. And they'll sit down with women and talk about the economic advantages (laughs) of their girls staying in school. So you're doing
1: you're doing this through training. Pro- you're getting a cadre of people uh, who want to do this work. You're putting them at, through a training program, um, and at both local and international to get trained at the same time.
2: Uh, yes, uh, not always. Sometimes it's um, separate. It depends on the subject matter of the training. Okay. But there's at least now a dozen of these women's peacekeeping teams working in south sudan
1: that's amazing it's amazing and uh and they're all wearing their t-shirts you bet <laughs> it's it's a little bit remindful of you and know, i don't know how much you were aware of when mediation first became such a, a big deal and all the school programs and you know in, in in even in preschool kids had you know like little mediation t-shirts on, on the, out on the playground and so they they were providing a third you know third side out there with those kinds yes. of situations and it's uh so um so, uh, and 40% are women, and I'm curious how, because violence, that kind of violence is so terrifying, um, I'm curious what you're actually teaching people so that they can actually stand up uh, and feel empowered to stand up in the face of it.
2: I agree with you. The, the violence is terrifying. I What we are teaching people uh, are, first of all, how to take care of themselves Mm -hmm. and how to not take unnecessary risks. Uh, We don't do this work to make ourselves martyrs. We do this work because this is an effective way to protect civilians and to deter violence. We teach people methods. There are 10 different methods of unarmed civilian protection that have been shown to work and protect civilians in a wide variety of violent conflicts.
1: Would it be worth going through those or
2: would that be too much? Um, Let me give you a couple examples. Okay. Okay. Uh, The most well-known method is accompaniment Mm -hmm. of providing one-on-one unarmed bodyguards for people who are under direct threat because of the work that they do. So these are often human rights defenders, journalists, or local peace builders who have a a multiplying effect on the community. Mm -hmm. And so they're targeted. Mm -hmm. And what we find is if we provide a one-on-one civilian protector with them, that expands their ability to do the work. So, for example, in Guatemala, during a presidential campaign, there was a women's human rights defenders group that was unearthing documentation of the genocide that took place there. And as they were doing that, they were implicating candidates that were running for elected office. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yes, that got them in a lot of Mm trouble. Mm-hmm. their office was broken into, their uh, files were taken, a noose was left hanging from the ceiling, all the women got uh, threatening messages on their voicemails. And so we were able to send a team who for seven months accompanied these women as they went through the countryside gathering documentation. Now. These are very courageous women. They would have done that work whether we were there or not. But by us being there and merely accom- accompanying them, riding the buses, w- sitting in cafes, watching the doors, that extended their ability to do their work and their confidence to be able to focus on the work as they were doing it.
1: What I don't get, Mel, is how you're see- are, are your folks seen as neutrals? Really? Yes. And how does that come to be?
2: If you're only
1: accompanying one side, how does that come to be?
2: We will accompany anyone who's under threat uh, from a violent conflict, anyone who's working on peace building, reconciliation, human rights. Uh, We are totally nonpartisan in the work that we do.
1: But don't uh, rebels, armed groups, don't they see you as getting in their way?
2: I think not only rebels and armed groups sometimes see us as getting in the way, but also sometimes uh, armed actors from governments see us as getting in the way. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. At the same time, it's our business to keep channels of communication open uh, between the groups. So let me give you an example. We have been in the Mindanao region of the Philippines since 2007. Mm-hmm. We are nonpartisan, which means that we maintain open channels of communication with the government of the Philippines as well as the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, which has been the major armed actor there. That led to, in 2009, nonviolent peace force being invited by both the government of the Philippines and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front to be directly involved in the ceasefire. And to oversee the civilian protection component of that ceasefire. So, for four years, we had nine teams across the island of Mindanao who were monitoring, verifying, reporting, and intervening when there were threats to civilians during the ceasefire. It meant that every day we reported to the government of the Philippines, we reported to the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. And we reported to the Malaysians mm-hmm. who were overseeing the ceasefire, mm-hmm. and so that nonpartisanship gave us the status to be able to do that work and to play an important role in what led to a comprehensive peace agreement.
1: Yeah! Wow! 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 Um, and do you have to do you know in, in, in a more in a more formal kinds of mediation? Uh, I would call what you 're doing i don 't know if you call what you 're doing mediation, but it certainly has uh do you ever do you use that word
2: We use it, but we are not professional mediators uh at times uh we do a lot of mediators mediating because we are in uh very remote situations. Mm-hmm. So an example uh, a conflict arose in South Sudan between cattle keepers and farmers. This is an age-old conflict, not only in South Sudan. The song Don't Fence Me In in the United States (laughs) is about that same conflict.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And in South Sudan, in the midst of a very volatile war, these conflicts take on much broader dimensions. And so a... um, Conflict arose between two groups. 76,000 people were displaced very quickly. Uh, a hospital was burned. A few houses was were burned. And so we played a role of talking to the rival chiefs, of shuttling back and forth in very remote areas, sometimes walking through mud up to our knees, uh, going back and forth and at one point accompanying the local chief of one tribe to the area of another tribe. He didn't feel safe going alone so we provided him with protective accompaniment and for three days we held the space. This was in a, a little church where the rival chiefs met. They had 300 of their men sitting outside during this time Sitting around a soccer field mm-hmm. that could have exploded. Absolutely, but holding that space. Right,
1: right. That's really uh, uh, that concept is such a powerful concept. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the process of open space. Um, a, as a, I am. Uh, Harrison Owen is going to come on the show. Oh, actually, right. you know the the the, fa- the well, he I don't know he he was the founder, but of course it it, it emanated from a lot of. Uh, other places that have been, that kind of process has been going on forever. But simply that process of holding space is extremely, extremely powerful in terms of um, people knowing that there's a third side watching. Um, So this was,
2: this was many, many hours from the Capitol. uh And I, the agreement that was reached set up new routes For the cattle keepers to herd their cattle. And by by herds, sometimes in the mid or in in the United States, we think, oh, you know, there's a dozen cows. Right. We're talking about a thousand plus head of cattle. (laughs) And so if they go through the crops of a village, the livelihood for that village is over for that growing season. Big stakes. Right. And so They were able to negotiate alternative routes where the cattle didn't eat the crops. And then for the next six months, we accompanied the process. It required 115 interventions at the local level to make sure that things were being upheld, but no fighting broke out and 76,000 people went home.
1: Wow. Wow. So Mel, there's so many different questions I want to ask you I think I'm just going to follow up on the one thing one thread that we've had going which is the methodology one is accompaniment yeah. and another one is a is I guess it's sort of you don't call yourself mediators but an informal kind of third side uh, nonpartisan yes. um, are there other just uh, other examples of the kinds of methodologies that you're using
2: yes um, another methodology that we use very carefully is called interpositioning, where at times, we will place ourselves between two conflicting parties, either to protect civilians who are caught in the middle or to provide a buffer. Now, we don't parachute in with rucksacks full of good intentions.
1: (laughs) This sounds very dangerous.
2: We only do this after we have had strong communication with the conflicting sides. So going back to Mindanao, Mm -hmm. during that ceasefire, two armed patrols, one from the armed forces of the Philippines, one from the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, were converging upon a village of a thousand people. The people started to panic, they started to pack up, they started to get ready to flee. The elders of that village called our team who were in the vicinity. Our team said that they would come and en route during this modern age, you have the local commanders on speed dial. And so they called the local commander of the armed forces of the Philippines. They called the local commander of the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. They said, you know, there must be a mistake. You guys all know about the ceasefire. We know that you wanna honor that ceasefire. You've got a couple patrols that are within 500 meters of this village. You know, as we know, that's a violation of the ceasefire. Furthermore, a thousand people are packing right now and are about to flee. And we know that you don't want that to happen. So to make sure that doesn't happen, our team will go and stay in the village.
1: And what are you doing about language? I, everybody, are there enough people on your team that speak whatever language you're Yes. Uh-huh.
2: Yes. And so we went to the village. We sat there, both armed groups backed off, and a thousand people stayed home. Wow. So that's an example of wow, it. It's amazing.
1: amazing. Um, the obvious question, how many uh, do your people get hurt?
2: We have been in the field now. Our first team uh, went to Sri Lanka in 2003. So about 12 and a half years and during that time we have had four conflict related injuries no deaths no deaths
1: no deaths okay
2: i as i said we d- we are not doing this to make ourselves martyrs
1: right
2: yeah. at the same time we do accept that i in our line of work i some of us might get killed at some point right. we don't do it I mean, we life is precious to us, right. including our lives. Right, right. And so, I uh, we have a very strict security protocol. We live and work in areas of violent conflict. At the same time, there are ways that we can mitigate those risks, and people are trained in that. And if they don't follow through, they are sent home. It's.
1: So, Mel, I think it would be really interesting to hear a bit about the origins of this. Uh, how, you know, how did it get going? And, uh, yeah, could you paint a little bit, you know, just within, obviously, we don't have tons of time, but give us some sense of, of uh, where this all, you know, how this evolved.
2: Well, that's a, that can be a long or, or a short answer. Um, I came to it after being confronted in a class by a Sufi. Uh, who told me that my role was to enter the heart of my enemy. And that led me into a deep pursuit of understanding how to work from a basis of unity as opposed to duality. As a community organizer, I had always worked on the premise of us versus them, good versus bad, right versus wrong and i was being challenged right to my core to shed that illusion and to work from an understanding of our unity that led me i was on a sojourn that led me to
1: spend I, i'm sorry to I, I mean i'm curious what kind of class were you what kind of class were you in <laughs>
2: I was a class I it was a class on the mystics uh-huh. at a place called the University of Creation Spirituality uh, okay. where we used open source open space technology. Oh
1: uh, wow, okay.
2: Um and it was a class on Rumi, the yeah. Persian poet. Lovely. And when the students ready the teachers appear. Isn't
1: that the case? Yeah. And
2: so I from that point on, from the con- confrontation of that Sufi, I started looking at an understanding of our connectivity of all sentient beings. Mm-hmm. That led me a year later to a Buddhist monastery in southern France called Plum Village. Ah, yes. I, with a Vietnamese monk by the name of Thich Nhat Hanh. Ah, uh, of
1: course. Okay. Thich Nhat
2: Hanh challenged me about... We are no longer at a place in history where we can afford to take sides. The stakes are too large. So it was on leaving Plum Village, riding on a bus in France, I wrote a, a reflection piece on a nonviolent peace force. Mm-hmm. That Wait,
1: which didn't exist yet. I mean, right. Yeah, it's just it on how it might yeah, yeah. work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This
2: was in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. That led me to a conference in The Hague, called the Hague Appeal for Peace in May of 1999 where I met other people who shared this vision. And so over the next couple of years, we traveled around with this vague idea, learning from people what they were doing that was working to protect people in the areas of violent conflict and what might they need from well-trained unarmed civilian protectors. The most important thing that we learned was that this was not a vision that had originated with me or any of the other core organizers, but this was a recurrent vision. Hmm. Indeed, Gandhi Mm -hmm. had been working on the Shanti Sena, Mm -hmm. which is Sanskrit for Peace Army, Mm -hmm. when he was killed, and it had recurred and occurred to enough of us around the world that we were willing to step forward, forward. with our spirits, our intellect, our treasure, our lives to bring this into being.
1: Oh, it's It's, interesting how those ideas, you know, there aren't any original ideas, right? They all sprout in different places at the same time or something like that. You know, it's very
2: interesting to study that. Yeah, the thing about
1: consciousness and yeah.
2: It's a global phenomenon. Right.
1: Right. So are there other organizations that are like yours doing the same kind of thing um, that, that got going at the same time? I, I know about the peace brigades. I don't really know much about them, but um, are they similar?
2: Are they? There are 12 international non-governmental organizations at work in the world today, including Peace Brigades International, including Cure Violence including the World Council of Churches Ecumenical Accompaniment Project for Palestine and Israel, including Christian peacemaker teams and a variety of others that are doing some form of unarmed civilian protection in 17 areas of violent conflict. So they are growing. This is an emerging methodology that lots of different groups can do.
1: Well that was my next question I was kind of I was wondering about the um, the limits of this and the potential of this what your thoughts are about that
2: It is limited i uh, it does not work in every violent conflict. We have twenty four criteria that we apply when we receive invitations and we do exploration to see whether or not we can protect i uh, And there are situations where we cannot protect. No approach works in every situation. Always be careful if somebody says this is the cure-all. But it can protect a growing number of people. And today, Susan, we have, according to the UN High Commission on Refugees, over 60 million of us who have had to flee our homes because of violent conflict. And that number grows by 40,000 every day. And so we have to really push ourselves to look at what are those methodologies that can be offered to our brothers and sisters who are having to flee, whether that means means going across and risking being drowned in the Aegean Sea or whether that means having to go into the marshlands in South Sudan and to stand with them with effective ways where people can stay home and build peace as opposing to have to flee.
1: So what do you envision you know if what what do you think the uh, potential is of how what do you think the growth potential is of this? It sounds like you think there's a lot of room for expansion growth um, of this methodology
2: yes uh, there it, it can increase thousands fold uh, number one it doesn't cost a lot of money I uh, in fact when it comes to dealing with violent conflict, we're the fiscal conservatives. Mm-hmm. We're a lot cheaper than military approaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But we don't sell it because it's cheap. Yeah, We offer it because it's effective.
1: I liked your language of it's a relationship-based approach rather than a, a threat, what did, what did you say, a threat, co- threat. threat coercion or... or threat uh,
2: domination. Threat
1: domination, yeah, approach.
2: That's so, right. Mm-hmm. Our ability to protect depends on building relationships. And those relationships are essential. And what we find sometimes in the field is that our local partners, while we are there to protect them, are also protecting us. Mm-hmm. It's a very interactive, wow. dynamic relationship. Yeah. And local groups can do this. I Now, people have to be properly trained and properly supervised, but we are putting together an online e-learning course that will be available this spring that will be offered by the UN training and research organization, UNITAR, where people can learn how to do this. Hmm. Uh, And it can be done by governmental organizations. It can be done by UN organizations. And we are finding that there is growing recognition
1: if people are interested in that, um, I, I gather there won't be a link right now, but if they went to your website later on, will they find a link to this course?
2: You bet. Uh, in fact, earlier today, I was on a conference call with the team uh, that's working, and we're uh, almost done with the putting the third module up. Uh, the manual has been written for, for months, but now doing the technical part, we have a team in Geneva that's putting that together. It will be five modules. Uh, the third module we're just finishing up, and our uh, the fifth module will be done in March.
1: Mm. So tell, tell me a little bit more about, it sounds like uh, you, are, you are coordinating with the UN, and how does, how does that look?
2: We are working with them. Last year, in two global reviews that were done by the UN, one on UN peace operations, and the second one on women, peace, and security, they strongly, in both of those reviews, recommended unarmed approaches to must be in the forefront of the UN efforts to protect civilians and specifically talked about unarmed civilian protection and how it's been shown to be effective in protecting women and children. And so this needs to be a methodology that is scaled up.
1: So just to put that in context, uh, uh, let's see. Peacekeeping missions, UN peacekeeping missions, have been going on pretty, probably since the beginning of the UN. Uh, since,
2: um, the mid-1950s.
1: since the mid 1950s. Since the mid 1950s, and now this is a, a new. This is a relatively new awareness um, yes. that this this unarmed uh, civilian protection forces um, should be incorporated uh, in in addition to. Um, UN peacekeeping forces.
2: You're exactly right. UN peacekeeping was uh, not included in the charter. It came along after the oh. UN got going. Okay. And it was a new approach yeah. of sending neutral, armed, usually armed, although they are aren't always, uh, to areas of violent conflict and that has uh, evolved to today 95% of the UN Armed peacekeepers are in areas under a mandate for protection of civilians. Mm-hmm. Now, that wasn't in the beginning. It was much more the interpositioning approach. Right. Uh, and so what we see is that unarmed civilian protection brings together the concept of peacekeeping with the concept of strategic nonviolence. And it's a fusion of those two. Uh, that then is applied to effectively protect civilians.
1: I'm wondering if if UN peacekeepers uh, get any of the training that your folks get or similar kinds of training. Do you know?
2: Uh, They don't. We are working on that. We are designing the course with UNITAR Mm -hmm. so that it will be available to UN peacekeepers. And, you know, Susan, in the field, there are plenty of armed peacekeepers who are utterly fascinated with what we do. I bet. <laughs> and, I bet. and are interested. I have h- had um, commanders invite me and say, come and tell us what you do and how you do that. Uh-huh. There at that level, there is not the competition.
1: Yeah.
2: There is curiosity. Yeah. These guys are there because they want to protect civilians. Sure. I'm sure they just are totally appreciative of your support and what you're doing.
1: Yeah. Um, so we are, you know, uh, uh, Burning a little daylight here, and I want to just see if there's things that we haven't talked about that you want to make sure get talked about that you think would be important. Anything that you think you skipped over?
2: Well, the most important thing is uh, when you think about unarmed civilian protection, it is a way to spark your moral imaginations, When you hear political leaders, pundits, opinion writers say, well, you know, there's really no choice. It's either send in the bombers, the drones, the boots on the ground, or do nothing. That's a time to engage your imaginations because the only war that matters is the war against the imagination. All other wars are subsumed by it.
1: Yeah, you know, one of my favorite quotes, and I don't know who said it, but the absence of peace is a failure of
2: imagination. That's right. (laughs) And I just quoted, by the way, the poet Diane De Prima. Oh, okay. Um, Okay. And so that when they say it's either send in the violence or do nothing, that's when to engage our imaginations and say, no, there's nonviolent peace force, Mm -hmm. there's unarmed civilian protection, there's peace building there's mediation. There are all kinds of alternatives that go in between those two polarities. And today we see it, and it's bipartisan. If you watch uh, in this country, in the United States, the political debates, whether it be uh, the Republicans or the Democrats, they all agree that there has to be armed intervention. It's a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. And it's a matter of you know, training versus boots on the ground versus drones, but nobody is talking about effective nonviolent approaches.
1: How much, and this is my cynical self, but how much of that do you think is is motivated by money that's made off of the arms
2: trade? A huge amount. A huge amount. I, As some of the candidates are pointing out, money shapes our opinions. Money shapes our choices. When I the majority of military commentators on television and radio, whether it be CBS or PBS, the majority of those commentators also have contracts with weapons makers. And so, of course, they have a message to deliver. And that message is armed approaches.
1: Which, which is, you know, I know we talked, you and I talked about this the other day. One of my motivations for this podcast was how tired I was of listening to the, me- the, the, the mainstream media talk about violent conflict and that there's never any sunlight put on, you know, these kinds of things, the kind of work that you're doing and other people are doing that are hugely constructive approaches to, um, to it versus, uh, versus something that is, is uh, going to just simply exacerbate
2: it or potentially exacerbate it. That's so. right. So, the other thing though, while we're on the subject of money, yeah, yeah. I we thrive on the donations of individuals, mm-hmm. and I am not shy about telling everyone listening, We need your money. Yeah, whether that be ten bucks or ten thousand bucks, go to our website, nonviolentpeaceforce.org. We thrive because of the prayers, the aspirations, the hopes, and the money. Of individuals around the world.
1: Beautiful. It'll be. It'll be there. So while we're on that topic, too, for you, I mean, I'm sure you're not getting rich doing this work. Um, what do you What do you get out of it yourself, personally? How is it? How has it impacted you as a human being?
2: Um, it's an antidote to despair. Often when I'm reading through the newspapers in the morning and I see this headline, I see this article, um, I have an overwhelming sense of responsibility. And knowing that I have the precious opportunity to be involved in creating a new story, a new narrative of how to deal with the violence that can just overwhelm and kill us, literally. Uh, Keeps me out of uh, the despair that uh, anyone who's paying attention is skating along the brink of every day.
1: And Mel, do you... You know, I always feel like I'm at the risk of being Pollyannaish or something. But can do you hold a vision? Do do you think it's possible that we get beyond this as a species? That we get to a different place where we're actually doing other things than being engaged in these kinds of violent conflicts? Of
2: course, of course, and we have demonstrated it. Uh, If you look at uh, nuclear test ban, if you look at um, the abolition of slavery. And uh, if you look at foot binding, uh, it, it, there's all these practices. Now, we can put an asterisk next to everything I said and, said and say, yes, but it's still going on here and it's still going on there. We cannot lose sight of that, but we also have to know that it is no longer the international norm yeah. that it once was. Yeah. We do change as a species. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of what direction we want to go. Mm-hmm. And if we are true, to our true selves and who we are meant to be, I do have the faith that we will go in the right direction.
1: Yeah, there's a beautiful Gandhi quote to this, and I can't pull it up in my mind, but it's, it speaks to exactly this that over time, things in fact really have gotten better. If you look at it, it really has gotten better.
2: I do dimly perceive. <laughs> That's his quote. That's what uh-huh. it out.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> So okay, well, listen. Uh, I guess the way people reach you is is uh, on your website, which will be uh, the, it's the Nonviolent Peace Force. Uh, if they want to sign up, how do, they, or they they can
2: do it? They have you to can,
1: apply. They uh,
2: we I uh, probably will have jobs available again soon in South Sudan. We just uh, got a generous grant from the Dutch government, uh, and so we will be recruiting people. And uh, there are also ways to volunteer and to become involved in your own communities.
1: And any parting words of wisdom to uh, this community of listeners, which, of course, is pretty broad. It's uh, everything from uh, people starting out to people that are more seasoned. Uh, but, but any parting thoughts about building peace and what's needed?
2: You have it within you to bring about the change that is required.
1: Thank you, Mel. It's been really, really interesting and I'm really moved by the work that you're doing. It's really, really beautiful work. So thank you very much.
2: It was good to be with you, Susan. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Peacebuilding Podcast. Check out PeacebuildingPodcast.com for show notes and for more great information and resources. We like your feedback, comments, and suggestions please email them to Susan Coleman at susan at the peace and come join us again for next week's episode for more great thinking innovations and ideas to take our planet to the next level.